So this became like, okay, my goal has to be that I have to go into IIT and actually have to study computer science. Mm. And uh, so for that, I had to basically reverse engineer what I have to do to achieve that, right? Okay, yeah. I was, at that time, I was in a small town called uh, Salem. So it's, there's a, the only thing that is famous for is a steel plant over there. <laughs> there, wasn't, uh, there weren't any coaching centers for IIT. In my town, I, I guess before me, the one person who went to IIT was like maybe six years before. Even though I was from a small town and there's not that much kind of awareness or like coaching opportunities within that town, um, I had the other big advantage that my brother had gone through the same process and so I kind of knew what to expect. Once, once the exams are over and we got into IIT, I think the biggest lesson was learning how to work with peers, right? Was as smart, smarter than you. So one thing I realized was, uh, you know, if you are in the rat race, you, you tend to lose your work-life balance and you are essentially saving up for the last 10, 20 years of your life where you don't have the energy to do what you want to do. Welcome to the Immigrant Computer Scientists podcast, where we talk to computer scientists who immigrated from their home countries for study or for work or for other reasons. In these oral history interviews, you will find established and renowned computer scientists from across academia and industry narrating their experiences of immigrating from where they grew up to a completely different land, often the US. My name is Indy Gupta, and I'm your host. Welcome to the premiere episode of Season 2 of the Immigrant Computer Scientists Podcast. These first three episodes of this new season, starting with this one, cover the nation of India. India is the second most populous nation in the world. It's also currently one of the largest sources of immigrants to the US in the information technology and computer science sectors. An episode like today's episode has never been done before. Seven technologists all gathered together. All of them studied in the same major from the same university in India during the same four years back in the 1990s. And our discussion covers a range of topics, beginning from our individual immigrant journeys to everyone's perspectives on the IITs, on India, on technology, and on life as Indian immigrants in the US. Now, India is a large country, as I said before, and no single episode can do it justice. Yet, within India, one of the most premier universities for engineering is the IITs, or Indian Institutes of Technology. The first IITs were created by the Indian government in and around 1951, a few years after the nation achieved its independence from Great Britain. The IITs have always intended to be and have always been the premier place to study all engineering disciplines in India. First came IIT Kharagpur in the eastern part of India. Soon by the late 1950s, four more IITs had been added in Bombay or Mumbai to the west, Kanpur to the north, Madras or Chennai to the south, 
and Delhi to the north. Until 1994, these were the five IITs spread all across the country. The demand for the IITs was so high that the Indian government started expanding them after 1995. Today, there are 23 IIT locations, give or take a few. Anyway, for this episode, we rewind back to 1994 when there were only five IITs. Now, entering the IITs is really, really hard. One has to write a national entrance exam called the IIT JEE or IIT Joint Entrance Exam for the Indian Institutes of Technology. This exam covers a variety of subjects, including physics, chemistry, and math. The total score you get on this exam is used to rank you among candidates nationwide. No other scores in your life or school career matter. Your high school letters, uh, recommendation, your high school scores, none of these matter at all, just the exam. And so your rank from the national exam determines which of your preferences you get into, which of the IITs you get into. Yes, some of them are considered ranked higher than others. It also determines your discipline, the computer science being one of the most sought after disciplines. Everything depends on your rank. So only higher ranks get into computer science in the best of the IITs. The year that I wrote the IIT JE in 1994, about 200,000 students wrote the exam across the entire nation of India. Out of them, only about the top 2,000 or 3,000 students got into IITs at all in any discipline. And among these couple of thousands, only the top 48 ranks in the entire nation of India, the second most populous nation in the world, got into the most sought after location, IIT Madras or IIT Chennai's computer science batch. All my six guests today, as well as I, are among these IIT Madras or IIT Chennai's computer science batch in, in 1994. In today's episode, seven students, that's one-fourth or 25% of the computer science batch of IIT Madras that graduated in 1998. All in one room, all discussing our journeys 23 years after we graduated with our bachelors. Today's episode is the first of two parts. Part one, today, covers the individual journeys of each of our six guests. Next week, in part two, is the free-ranging discussion among all seven of us. Surprises abound as we discover new things about each other's backgrounds that we did not know before. And some of us make surprising revelations about how our outlook has changed in the two and a half decades since we came to the US. And some of us divulge surprising plans for our futures. The episode guide for all episodes is available on our website, csimmigrant.org. Again, that's csimmigrant.org. Here we go. Joining me on today's episode of the Immigrant Computer Scientist podcast, I have with me six computer scientists who were in the same batch in their Bachelor of Technology program for Computer Science and Engineering in the Indian Institute of Technology, or IIT, in Chennai, India, then known as Madras. So I might call it as IIT Chennai or IIT Madras. Anyway, all six of my guests started in IIT Madras in 1994 in the bachelor's program and uh, graduated with their bachelor's in 1998. I myself was also in that same batch, so I'm going to be referring to our group sometimes as we. In 1998, right after we finished our bachelor's, we all immigrated to the U.S. for graduate school to different universities. My six guests today have master's and PhD degrees from MIT, Stanford, 
University of Illinois, two of them, and University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, two of them. And although we each finished graduate school in different years, some of us with a master's and some of us with a PhD, we all continued to stay in the US. We became immigrant computer scientists. During those four years, 94 to 98 in the bachelor's program at IIT Madras, the seven of us here, along with our other batchmates, uh, I think about 30 or so, uh, in total attended the same classes. We stayed in the same dorm hall, which we call a hostel in India. Uh, we ate the same food and drank the same water. Um, opinions vary about the quality of those. Mm -hmm. uh, we watched the same movies. Again, opinions vary about quality of those. Uh, and we read the same books. I cannot tell you how much joy it gives me to talk to these brothers of mine today for the Immigrant Computer Scientist podcast. I'm delighted to welcome my six guests today, Balaji Srinivasan, Praveen Patnala, Rajasekhar Krishnamurti, Ramesh Chandra, Shankar Ponekanti, and Sriram Salapa. All six of my batchmates and guests today are based currently and live in the California, San Francisco Bay Area. Three of them are or have been startup founders, and the remaining three of them have spent over a decade at a single company, and some of them belong to both the groups. I'll introduce the startup founders first, one by one, in alphabetical order of their first name, asking each of them one question. Then I'll talk to the long timers, and then I have some questions for the entire group. And as usual, we will digress when interesting avenues appear in the conversation. Here we go. First up is uh, Praveen Patnala, who is currently co-founder and chief architect of Valtics, which is a stealth mode startup. The uh, cloud, and it's a cloud-native network security platform for enterprises. He's been there since 2018, which is when the company was founded. Valtics has been wildly successful. Uh, online information says it's received over $27 million of funding, including Series A funding. Numbers are probably higher than my information here. A uh, bit of Praveen's chronological story. Uh, he grew up in the state of, uh, the Indian state of uh, Urisa, or Urisha as it is known today, in the 1970s, 80s, and 90s. From 94 to 98, he was in the IIT Madras batch, as I mentioned earlier. Uh, then he moved to the U.S. from 98 to 2000. He finished his Master of Science in Computer Science at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, also known as UNC. From 2000 to 2010, uh, he was at multiple companies, started at Yahoo, first job after grad school, then at Cisco, Andiamo, Nexi. And from 2010 to 2015, he was a Director of Engineering at Bloomreach. He was at LaserLike in 2016, which was acquired by Apple. And then he spent a brief while in Google uh, in 2018, before he founded Valtics. Welcome, Praveen. Uh, tell us what made you take the jump from working in the big tech companies, you've worked in many of them, uh, into founding a startup. Thank you, thank you, Indranil. It's a pleasure talking to you and also be among my longtime friends and classmates. Uh, so, you know, uh, thanks for the intro, by the way, also about uh, myself and the, the journey, right? So in the industry, I've been there you know, for like 20 years now, 20 plus, and I worked at a few very, very large companies like Cisco, later on uh, Google. And uh, personally, I'm pretty ambitious. So so even though I was at uh, Cisco, I, I came to Cisco through an acquisition called Andiamo. And um, so uh, one thing that I, and then I stayed on in Cisco for a few years, right? And when I joined Google, it was already a 100,000 people company. So the opportunity as an engineer to make a difference in a very, very large company is actually, uh, you know, it's very hard to make a huge difference, right? So in general, that is true. 
Um, and I always had an ambition to build something from scratch, which could be widely used by either end users or enterprises, right? And with Voltex, uh, we had an idea. We went to investors. The idea was picked very favorably by the investors. We got, we got funded very, very quickly, right? And today, within three and a half years, we have built something that is pretty remarkable and it is already used by 20 plus enterprises. So I'm very proud of uh, what we have achieved as a team, not just as an individual. Some Building something like this um, from zero to one in a large company like Google is very, very hard. Although Google, companies like Google especially are very, very entrepreneurial. So there are people, there are exceptions where people can make a huge difference. Mm -hmm. But I found it hard to see. Plus, I had an opportunity to build something from scratch. I took the plunge. Mm -hmm. uh, and I'm very happy with what we have done. There is a long way to go. Mm -hmm. We are about 40 people. Uh, the numbers you provided are correct. Uh, 27 million in funding. And uh, the product is used by... 20 large, pretty well-known enterprises in the Bay Area. I mean, actually all over the world. And we look forward to having a big success in the future. Would you say your experience at Google and the big companies helped you in the startup? So in a parallel world where you're not working in any of these big companies, do you think your experience may have been uh, different, less in founding the startup and making it as successful as it is? Actually, the product that we are building, right, is happens to be very, very relevant to both at Google Cloud where I was working, as well as Cisco. They're very related because I was, the, you know, what we have built is a network security product and a lot of that foundation, foundation knowledge I gained in Cisco when I was there. And I was working in a very similar space in Google, although it was a very, very short time. So personally, it helped me build the right architecture for the product itself, right? So what we have built is, um, you know, network security as a service based on a SDN style model, software defined networking model, decoupled control plane and data plane, right? The network inspection engine. And I work on the control plane. Mm. Turns out for specifically for this idea, I used to work on a very similar uh, product in Cisco in a more data center like appliance embedded systems product. And in Google, I was working on the same thing, but at a much, much larger scale, right? The, the Google you know, the controller or the, you know, the uh, the policy management plane that I was working is one of the largest distributed applications on earth, actually. So it actually helped me define the, you know, build the right product, the right architecture at Voltex. That is a techno, that's the technical part of okay. the answer. Okay. But I think in general, uh, the experiences from both Cisco and Google, they, they do help me both building a company with the right culture and everything. Also, you know, we are building something that is really enterprise class, right? That is uh, the, you know, it's not like a open source or, a, uh, you know, like a DevOps software, which people can use, they can live with the deficiencies, etc. What we are building is for very large scale enterprises where the, um, uh, yeah, the margin of error is very low, right? If we fail in the field, they will just disconnect us, right? Because, because if we fail in the field, people lose jobs, right? This is what I learned in Cisco. That is, you build very high, you know, high class enterprise class products, which are tested, QA'd for like years before it is actually in the field. Mm -hmm. Now, we want to match that with the cloud speed where we can build quickly and customers can use rapidly, but it still has to be enterprise class, right? So both those experiences help me build the right architecture, but also follow those best practices in terms of enterprise software.
Thank you for the beautiful description. So if our listeners want to learn more about uh, Voltics, they can go to the website. Yes, the website is Voltics.com and uh, you can email us at info at Voltics.com. Thank you, Praveen. Up next is uh, Ramesh uh, Chandra. Uh, Ramesh has had an interestingly circuitous route between industry and academia. He's currently a software engineer at Databricks, where he has been since 2021, just earlier this year. Before that, Ramesh's story in chronological order, he grew up in the state of then Andhra Pradesh in the 1970s, 80s, and 90s. Uh, from 94 to 98, he was at IIT Madras in computer science and engineering with all of us. Uh, after that, from 98 to 2000, he did his Master of Science in Computer Science at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign, also known as UIUC. After that, 2000 to 2005, he was uh, at Stanford University as a PhD student. And also at the same time, he was a co-founder and principal engineer at the startup company Mocha 5 from 2005 to 2012. That's when the company lasted. And then in 2009, uh, Ramesh decided to go back to grad school and got a PhD from MIT uh, from 2009 to 2013. And then again, he's not left the startup world. He has been co-founder and CTO of Compass Quality Insight, which was there from 2012 to 2013. Uh, he worked five years at Nutanix since 2014, then a couple of years at Google, and then of course, more recently at Databricks. Welcome, Ramesh. Uh, tell us what made you go back for a PhD after being a startup founder. So that's a question I get asked a lot. Uh, why go back to grad school? Um, so I, I always wanted to go back, do a, a PhD uh, and wanted to explore the academics uh, space first. Um, and so I realized that um, the the window of opportunity is, is, there's only so much of window of opportunity. So um uh, at the time, around uh, around 2009, um, I was thinking of like what to do next, um, and I had uh, uh, the 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 person at MIT I was working with um, is someone I worked with before, mm -hmm. and so he had like an interesting project. In this was your advisor. Or? That was my advisor yeah. at, at MIT, mm -hmm. right? Um, and um, so I we you know I uh, we had a very good working relationship. I thought you know that's yeah. a it's a good opportunity to go. Yeah. Um, and so one important thing is like when I when, when uh, I uh, made these shifts and jumps, one one uh, important ca uh, criterion for me was the people I work with. Yeah. Right. So that's a uh, um, so that's why I can, I moved from. Uh, from Bay Area all the way to Boston. Would you say you have learned things from your PhD that have really given you an edge in the entrepreneurial world? Yeah, I think the the important thing I learned from the group I, I worked at at MIT was the precision with which they get things done. So so it was a uh, the experience there was kind of Socratic in a sense, like nowhere. The, my advisor, as well as the people around around him, uh, including Robert Morris and Franz Kaushik, mm -hmm. right? They had a, a style of. Um, and your advisor was Nikolai Zeldovich. My advisor was Nikolai Zeldovich. Um, they had uh, 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 an approach of asking a lot of questions. Mm -hmm. So when you when you come up with an idea, they'll kind of they they, they will ask a lot of questions and um, with not give you the, the answer straight away, right? So you would have to. Go explore the space. Come up, come up with, uh, uh, come up with the answers, and then you get challenged again. Mm. You have to kind of keep um, figuring it out until until the the argument is watertight, right? Mm. So that process uh, was very helpful in my uh, later journey. Um, mm. And the one interesting thing is from my previous uh, startup uh, journey, right? The reason why uh, one one of the things I learned from uh, 
from a Mocha 5 experience and also Compass uh, was the importance of customer focus, mm-hmm. the product focus, right? As mm-hmm. uh, And applying technology to, to the product. Mm-hmm. So technology by itself isn't, um, isn't helpful in the start- startup world, right? Mm-hmm. You need to kind of be able to marry that to the right product and right problem that you're solving for a customer. Um, so thinking about customer and uh, customer problems and the products at the same level of rigor, right, is, is helpful. Um, and that's that's another thing that uh, mm-hmm. when my uh, PhD experience helped. Mm-hmm. So for PhD students, for our listeners who are grad students, would you say there are, um, there are things that you learned from the entrepreneurial world that helped you be a better PhD student that today's PhD students perhaps can look at that and and uh, have an edge yeah i think so this is uh, uh this is more a systems uh sure. this answer is more focused to the systems folks right yeah. um who, who uh, systems phds and systems work has a lot of applications in industry so one thing uh, which will be helpful for folks uh, one industry experience helps in picking the right phd problem uh, systems problem uh, for your phd research mm. um, because the success of a, P, uh, a systems phd uh, in part, in large part, um, is determined by the impact it has, and impact mm-hmm. is determined by the kind, kind of uh, 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 the amount of adoption and, yeah. and uh, uh, real world application it has, yeah. right? And so, if you are, if you are working in the industry, you have a sense, and you are also like you know actively looking for the kinds of customer problems, not just at the technical part, but actually looking at what the technical problem is solving. And then you were able to, you, you go back, you go into a PhD with that knowledge that can help you a lot in terms of like finding the right problem. Because finding the right problem, as we know, is, yeah. is, is probably, you know, 80% of the, of the work. Our next guest is uh, Shankar Ponekanti. Uh, Shankar represents a great segue from the startup group to the long timers group as he belongs to both groups. Um, Shankar is currently a co-founder at the Startup Trust Lab since 2020. This is an early stage startup. Uh, before that, Shankar's story in chronological order, he uh, grew up in the state of then Andhra Pradesh in the 1970s, 80s, and 90s. From 94 to 98, he was in the IIT Madras Computer Science and Engineering batch with all of us. After that, from uh, 98 to 2004, he finished his PhD in computer science from Stanford University. From 2005 to 2020, uh, he uh, spent 15 years at Google, where he was a distinguished engineer. And then at 2020, um, he founded his company's trust lab. Uh, welcome, Shankar. Uh, again, similar to what I asked Praveen uh, earlier, tell us what made you take the jump into a startup, but in your case, after such a long time in a single company at Google. Thank you, Indranil. Uh, this is really a fun conversation. And I also really appreciated hearing the insights from like Praveen and, and Ramesh, even though I talk to them all the time. It, it's very interesting to hear the way they put uh, their responses. Um, so I was at Google for 15 years, uh, had a really amazing time there. Uh, lots of great people at Google, some of the industry's best work there. Um, towards the end, I was working on uh, content safety at YouTube. Mm. So I was working on classifiers for uh, all the videos that are uploaded on YouTube and, and uh, the labels that are produced by the classifiers. Um, of course, I was not doing this alone. There was a very large team. Um, and uh, the labels were used for various applications, like which videos to surface on YouTube's homepage, which videos are okay to recommend uh, on Watch Next uh, surface, uh, which videos are okay to show in YouTube Kids, um, and and uh, also uh, what videos are okay to monetize, meaning show ads on. Um, so I found the problem 
very very technically challenging in part because uh, understanding what a video is about uh, current technology is actually not adequate even though every day mm. progress is happening uh, leaps and bounds uh, as uh, new techniques come up in natural language machine mm. learning machine mm. vision all of those things um but uh, more than the technical part i also thought that the problem was very meaningful to to the society because uh, uh, there is a middle ground that you need to find between free speech on the one hand mm. um and also safety on the other hand right uh, because if you just don't control what content gets uploaded on youtube then a lot of bad con- content can get uploaded and and can go viral and and that can have mm. also a bad impact on mm. on society and that's been happening of course yeah. to some extent certainly yeah. right so in fact we had some big escalations while i was there yeah. at youtube where where i i learned a lot actually about uh, these types of issues uh, how to not just like the technical part of it but how do you actually manage the situation uh, from the standpoint of customers and end users and regulators and all of that um so yeah i found the 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 problem very meaningful the technology very interesting um but towards the end i i realized that uh there could actually be a even bigger opportunity to work on the same problem outside google um because there's lots of up and coming companies that are dealing with similar challenges uh with with content and uh, also the line between content bad content and, and kind of uh, there are times when you are actioning on the content itself and there are times when you are actioning on the actors who are uploading the content mm-hmm. um and when you look across online websites uh they have lots of challenges from both bad content and bad actors um and i felt that from my youtube experience i could uh, build similar systems industry wide solutions mm. that other up and coming companies can leverage mm. um and so there could be a good business opportunity here um was was the thesis uh of course i didn't start the company alone so i had two other mm. great co-founders um uh who i i also worked with at in, in google uh but they also brought experience from other smaller companies mm. and uh their experiences and vision was quite similar to mine mm. um and uh, yeah so after 15 years i was really looking for a change yeah and so when this opportunity came i um, i was pretty excited do you feel like you could have executed this startup inside of google um and i want to ask that in like two parallel worlds in, in today's google and then the older google like 10 years ago in the early days when you joined google cuz at that point it was a much smaller company much, much more nimble much more agile do you think it could have been executed you know if google was that young today could have been executed inside of google yeah. i mean a google is a pretty big company yeah. there is many parts of the company and and uh, there are parts like google x where they are coming up with new ideas all the time and trying to go from 0 to 1 and and then there are parts like search and youtube which are pretty mature um so, so some part of your answer to your question is yes i mean it's it's mm-hmm. possible in some parts of the company to to go and build stuff right from the ground up mm-hmm. um Uh, however one one challenge you do have at google is that um because google has huge revenue right at this point i mean it's a public company everybody can look at the revenue yeah. numbers uh one challenge is that small successes uh don't count for much of course mm-hmm. i'm not speaking officially in any kind of google capacity but i'm saying that, i mean you mm-hmm. can just do the math right so if yeah. if you come up with a product that has 100 million in revenues washing the bucket for for yeah. for the company right so so they have to plan they have to think 
very big stuff, mm-hmm. right? So uh, that's why, like, for example, recently they have been interested in Google Cloud because it's one of the areas where cloud, because that's one of the areas where there's opportunity to build like a sure. very big business, right? Sure. Uh, but lots of other areas, not so much, right? And because even if you are widely successful by any other standard, it may not make much of a difference for, for Google, yeah. right? So from that standpoint, uh, like even the content safety area, right? I mean, Google could, for example, offer services to, for other companies. Uh, and, and maybe it might, I'm, I'm not saying that it won't, but but I'm saying that that the potential, I mean, that business has to be sufficiently big for Google to get into it. Otherwise, mm-hmm. it's kind of not very yeah. meaningful for them to spread their uh, energy or kind of spend their energy on that, right? So. Okay, thank you. You're listening to the Immigrant Computer Scientists podcast. This episode, 24, is a conversation with six Indian technologists in the US, all of them IIT Chennai, India, graduates from 1998. So those were our startup founders, and now we come to the long timers. Um, uh, so first up is uh, Balaji Srinivasan, who is currently a director of engineering at SAP Ariba. He's been there since 2019. Again, chronologically, uh, Balaji's uh, story. Uh, he grew up in the state of Tamil Nadu in the 1970s, 80s, and 90s. Uh, from 94 to 98, he was with us at IIT Madras, computer science batch. 90 to 2000, he got his Master of Science in Computer Science at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign, UIUC. From 2000, when he graduated from UIUC until 2015, he was at Oracle, 15 years. Uh, then uh, he spent a couple of years at uh, Thin3 and ERA. Uh, and then since 2019, he's been at uh, SAP. Uh, welcome, Balaji. Uh, tell us what made you change jobs after 15 years at Oracle. So inertia is a big killer in in this industry. A uh, lot of people stay put, not by choice, but by inertia, they're in a comfortable space. It's hard to change. There are other things that they need to take care of, uh, mortgage, kids, family, and so yeah. on. But the industry, the pace at which the industry is changing invariably forces them to take some step one way or the other. Right. So mine was also similar. I worked on, moonlighted on multiple startups in the early 2000s, was pretty ambitious, like what Praveen was saying. But as time went on, other things got prioritized uh, with family and kids and all that. Uh, So this opportunity came across in 2015, and uh, that's when decided to move from a bigger company to a late-stage startup, then went to an early-stage startup, and then back to a bigger company. And have you um, have you thought of a startup in today's world? Frankly, over the time, I've yeah. become very cynical about the capitalistic society that we've been, especially the bubble that we are in the Bay Area, mm-hmm. and the dubious sources of money that comes in that essentially funds the startup system mm-hmm. here. Uh, the valuations and the, if you look at the overall income disparity between the general people that uh, that are around and yeah. then folks like us, yeah. right? A lot of it I question. Uh, so in my mind, uh, then the way the startup systems work here, the way the the funding comes in from places unknown, 
Mm. All that I question a lot. Mm. So I personally don't see myself fitting into that mm. space. Do you feel like we are in the middle of another bubble that might burst? Economically, yes. But more than that, right, the way it has shifted to the uh, the wealth going into one direction, right? So if frankly, if you see uh, in... In 10 years, I don't know whether people with other jobs can even stay in Bay Area as mm. they see here. Mm-hmm. It might become another Manhattan kind of yeah. place, right? Yeah. So those things worry me a lot more than, mm-hmm. uh, you know, going to the making the next big yeah. Uh, breakthrough. Yeah. Uh, one thing I want to ask you, Bharaji, is you, you've also done a lot of... Um, I don't want to say hobbies, but because these are large undertakings on the side. You, you organize several quiz competitions in the Bay Area, which are extremely well attended. Yeah. You have directed, written and directed plays uh, in Tamil, which are, again, very well uh, attended. Tell us a little bit about those. So one thing I realized was, uh, you know, if you are in the rat race, you, you tend to lose your work-life balance. And you are essentially saving up for the last 10, 20 years of your life where you don't have the energy to do what you want to do. So my focus has been to do the things that I love. And, and this, is, uh, this has taken me to co-write screenplays, be a part of book clubs, you know, work with authors, uh, write, you know, direct plays, and more recently, a lot of quizzing as well. Mm-hmm. And so this is, so, and I, I consider my main achievement is not in the career space, but more, in this, more in being a part of what my kids going go through, I teach math on the side, so that has been a that has been a very enriching experience for me as well. It's actually heartening to hear this because sometimes uh, when people think of the Silicon Valley Bay Area, they think oh you know everything is driven there, it's all work focused, uh, but it's nice that you have actually been able to balance it out fairly significantly more than most people do. Yeah. Um, with a lot of... I mean, it, it is a conscious decision and it comes with its yeah. own caveats as well. Right. Right. Yeah. Right. right. The fact that the environment has allowed you to do that and you managed to do that, I think that's a good sign for, for everyone. Yeah. For, for some reason, I've been able to find positions where I have that uh, bandwidth to work on things that I am interested in. Is there any trick to finding such positions? <laughs> a silver bullet? <laughs> you can say no. I have to ask. No, I mean, there is, right? I mean, we we tend to put pressure on ourselves artificially a lot, right? So um, if a mail comes on a Saturday evening, there is no necessity for you to uh, respond to it by before Monday morning. It's up to us to put the boundaries and say, I'm going to reserve this time for something else that I like to do a lot. Thank you. Moving along, up next is Rajasekhar Krishnamurti, who works at IBM, where he is a principal research staff member and senior manager in Watson Discovery. I'm going to ask whether IBM and Watson Discovery are different things or not. I'll ask that soon. Uh, before that, Rajasekhar's story in chronological order. He grew up in the state of Tamil Nadu in the 70s, 80s, and 90s. Uh, from 94 to 98, he was with us at IIT Madras in the computer science and engineering batch. From 98 to 2004, he did his PhD in computer science from the University of Wisconsin at Madison. From 2004 to the current day, he has been at IBM, so 17 years and running at IBM. He was with IBM Research Almaden and then um, more recently with Watson Discovery. Uh, welcome, uh, Rajasekhar. Uh, tell us a little bit about your work at Watson Discovery and 
what made you stay at IBM, a wonderful company. I've worked at IBM too. It's a wonderful company. I think you, you have been a long time out there, more than more than the rest of us here at the table. Thanks, Indranil, for having me here. Okay. So I've been in IBM for 17 years. Right? But depending on how you look at it, it's been a single job or it's been many different jobs. Right? In big companies, if you have the right opportunities and you're able to leverage it, you can do different things. For example, for about 14 years, I was in research, right, from 2004 to 2018. In those 14 years, there was about half a dozen of the first six years were focused on one set of problems, right, which was a continuation from what I was doing in my PhD, but a 180-degree difference in how it was approached. The whole idea was, how do you derive value from data? That's been the common theme in my mm -hmm. career, right? From my PhD all the way till date, right? And each stage has allowed me to look at different aspects. And as I said, in the first six years, it was looking at text as a source, mm -hmm. right? We as humans understand text right? and leverage search engines, leverage other systems. But when it comes to whether you call it AI, whether you call it whatever your fancy term is for today, there's a big gap in building systems that are going to be trustworthy, explainable, and can actually incrementally improve. Mm -hmm. So that was the focus for the first six years, which continued since then. Mm -hmm. But then for the next six years, it was around how do you link data that is coming from outside an individual's control or an enterprise's control with data that is generated by an individual or an enterprise. Right. Linked open data was one of the main uh, areas where a lot of public data was coming out. So between 2010 and 2016, a lot of my focus was around how do you understand such data sets and how do you link that with an enterprise's view of an individual and in a constructive way, bring value to the enterprise and to the individual. Mm. Right. And as I was doing this over about 14 years, mm all along work with clients. So one good thing about IBM research, and in particular Almaden where I worked, was culture of working with real data, real clients, was just common. You didn't mm. need to make too much of an effort. From the very beginning. From the very beginning. Mm. So for example, just between 2011 and 2016, mm. I personally worked with about six Fortune 50 companies and worked with clients, including startups, right, and so on. That breadth then allowed me to say, okay, try something closer to real clients, and that's when I moved to the product division. Yeah. Right? And Watson Discovery is one of the products in IBM's data and AI organization, right? and I lead that team today. Mm. And the whole idea of the product is, how do you help people understand content and answer questions, right? but using more recent technology. Right? Mm -hmm. For example, as employees, if I have a question, we have to go and look at content within the organization. Mm -hmm. Everyone knows that content is very hard to understand, especially content that is not for the billions of people. Anything on the web, a lot of effort is put in content creation and content consumption, anything within an enterprise, mm -hmm. right? or anything as a consumer. For example, when I have to 
when I when I first switched to a electric car a few years ago, mm. I don't know what an L gear meant. I don't know what regenerative braking means, mm. right? So all of this is in manuals, mm. right? If someone comes to repair the cable, they have to look up manuals, right? right? So how do you help derive through structure and semantics of those documents better systems? It's not going to match a human. It's going to help humans do their job better and faster, mm. right? And also train a new generation of employees in various organizations. Mm. I want to ask a little bit about the culture in IBM and IBM research. So w when we were in grad school in the early 2000s and, you know, when we were in the job markets in whatever years we were in the job markets, there were research labs that could do blue sky research. IBM research was one of them, but Microsoft research was there. HP labs was around then and pretty large. Uh, and there were several other companies. And over time, some of those research labs have kind of subsided or been uh, subsumed by the product divisions. IBM research has still stayed uh, its large size. Uh, but, uh, but my understanding is uh, from talking with former students and colleagues that uh, it has become a lot more product facing than it used to be. Is that been your experience too? As you said, IBM research has gone through many transformations, yeah. right? Adapting to change has been the single reason why it has survived. Right. So in this era where people move from academia to industry and back so often, right? when startups are founded by PhD students and professors and they become billion dollars, right? it's important for within a company for people to move back and forth between research and development. Mm -hmm. And more importantly, for people to have a culture of it's our job to make something succeed. So it's not, I build something in research and hope someone else will take it to market. Yeah. That doesn't succeed. So that culture has gone through many transformations, right? Mm -hmm. and, and if you look at history in the 90s, there was a very harder shift towards more product focus in research. Mm -hmm. Then it opened up a bit. So that, that pendulum keeps swinging, right? And depending on the area, that pendulum is going to be different. Like quantum computing, for example, yeah. right? came completely out of research. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So there are going to be big bets. Yeah. And then there are going to be medium-term bets. And in a medium-term bet, you don't have the luxury to say, I'll come back in five years because the rest of the world is moving very fast. And depending on individuals' and teams' interests, you'll see that there's a mixture available. This is a conversation with six Indian technologists in the U.S., all of them IIT Chennai, India, graduates from 1998. You're listening to the Immigrant Computer Scientists Podcast. Okay, next up is uh, Sriram Selapa, uh, who is currently a member of the technical staff at Arista Networks. He's been there since 2008, so 13 years and running. Before that, Sriram's story in chronological order, he grew up in the state of Tamil Nadu in the 70s, 80s, and 90s. From 94 to 98, he was in the IIT Madras Computer Science and Engineering batch with us, as I mentioned earlier. From 98 to 2000, uh, he finished his Master of Science in Computer Science at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, also known as UNC. Um, after grad school, uh, after he finished grad school in 2000, uh, he worked at Yahoo for one year and then one year at Nexi. Uh, and then he was for a couple of years at Andiamo Systems. 
From 2004 to 8, he was technical lead at Cisco, and then since then, from 2008, he has been at uh, Arista. Uh, welcome, uh, Sriram. I want to ask you two questions. Uh, the first question I want to ask you is about your work at Arista and um, and what has made you not make the jump into startup world, or maybe you have thought about it. I want to ask about that, and then I have another question which I'll ask you later. Thank you, Andranil, for that uh, lovely introduction. And uh, this is a great opportunity to uh, reconvene, have a discussion with the uh, longtime friends of mine. So, yeah, I, I, I moved, um, Pravina and me share a, a long path. We went to the same college and we shared the uh, same careers early on. So, uh, of course, we came to Bay Area because this is the world of startups. And that's what uh, excited me when I graduated. Uh, I was pondering whether to do a PhD, uh, then it was pretty clear uh, within a few months of into grad school that I wanted to get into the industry. And uh, even uh, even uh, while looking for a career, it was pretty clear I want to be in Bay Area. Uh, so it was straightforward. When I came here, I started off with Yahoo. Again, Yahoo, all this uh, dot-com bubble was in full swing at that time. And so uh, that was the prime uh, companies to be mm -hmm. in. I, uh, yeah, but uh, but it was already sort of at a scale that the innovation uh, wasn't wasn't at the level that I expected. So, like within a few months, I I was not uh, getting the work satisfaction I was expecting. Mm -hmm. So that's what uh, made me jump, uh, move to startups. And then the bubble crashed, uh, so I had to move to another startup. Fortunately, that was successful. It was uh, acquired by Cisco. I was in Cisco uh, in an established company. And then uh, after uh, after getting that experience, also, uh, you know, I I chose to go into startup. So anyway, uh, long story short, so I was primarily in the networking industry by that time of the career. And naturally, uh, I wanted to go back to startup, and I was looking for a, a, a startup which is still exciting, right? In the networking industry, and by that time, the networking industry has lost its charm. Like companies like Google were sort of the uh, attractive companies at that time. But I wanted to. Uh, I still found networking interesting, so I wanted to uh, go to a company. So, and I found this Arista uh, Networks. At that time, it was called Arasta. So I I actually didn't pay attention to it as much and I, I decided to move out and there was a storage company I had, uh, I had an offer from. It was Nimble Storage, it was, which was later acquired by HP. So I, I had a call uh, from uh, a recruiter and said, oh, hey, there's this company you want to come and interview. So I said, okay, anyway, what do I have to lose? I went and talked to them. So it was, it turned out it was a company started by Andy Bechtelsheim. He's one of the investors in Google, early investors in Google. And uh, somehow something, uh, I, you know, something somehow clicked. identified me with that company, right? the people, the culture. Something clicked. Yeah, something clicked, right? So the, the co-founder, the one of the co-founders was a, uh, uh, Stan, yeah, yeah. like Chandra, he was also a Stanford, MIT, PhD, <laughs> yeah. It's, it's been 13 years since I've yeah. been at that company and almost uh, every day, uh, you know, it's I, I don't f really feel bored, so I haven't looked outside. When I started, we were about 20 engineers. Mm -hmm. Now, uh, 
now there are probably 1000 i i don't uh, have the exact count but it's probably 1500 plus orders engineers of many orders of magnitude yeah. growth so it's a big company and for that scale of course uh, we were so i was still work with the same set of people course people i uh, you know i started out with and so uh, so i took on more management role right now i'm a director of software engineer also the one of the cool uh, innovative things that i've done com- compared to other companies is uh, being able to partner with customers and put together a solution because th- there are some things that they can do better which is mm. uh, develop controllers to manage their networks and we provide uh, sort of the features and the infrastructure needed mm. to integrate with that yeah uh, so that's uh, those sort of uh, partnership has also been very uh, successful in arista the next question i want to ask you is actually a segue to a broader question i want to ask everyone so um Sriram, so, you know, when when we were writing the IIT Joint Entrance Exam in 1994, which was a nationwide exam, um, uh, you came um, as the top ranker in the country among the scheduled CAS or SC. Um, can you tell us a little bit about the challenges you faced in preparing for the IIT JEE exam? Um, because your experiences are going to be very unique uh, compared to many others out there. So uh, I uh, grew up in a small town called Madurai. Uh, sorry, I was born in Madurai. It, it's uh, it's one of the. It, it's very famous. It's very old uh, city. It's like so going back history, thousand plus years. But then in terms of technology or education, it was very uh, limited. Anyway, my father was working for government, so he had transferable jobs. So pretty early on, we uh, moved to Chennai. Uh, it turned out so he because of uh, all of the the transfers he had to go through from through his career i ended up studying in almost eight schools wow throughout <laughs> from kindergarten to 12th grade so it turned out and also the the, the i heard about iit sometime during my uh, 8th grade or 7th grade that oh there is this thing called iit and people have to prepare uh, it's not just a you know the uh, academic marks uh, the grades are not enough you need to so i started uh, looking into it i was at that time i was in a small town called asilam so it's there's a, the only thing that is famous for is a steel plant over there <laughs> there wasn't uh, there weren't any coaching centers for iit so the only option for me there was uh, to to uh, to join this brilliance uh, tutorial program which is a postal program so they send you book materials every month and uh, that's what i uh, used to prepare did your dad um, and your mom were were they instrumental in you in your desire to go to iit was there a history in the family of being engineers and and going to iit so the my dad was engineer so he uh, he was uh, he went to anna university which was a college right uh, opposite yeah. to yeah. iit yeah. and uh, he uh, of course he, he grew up in a village and so mm-hmm. yeah you know he, that was probably in, in the family he was the first probably the first uh, mm-hmm. person who went to college mm-hmm. uh, so certainly uh, i was uh, sort of uh, had a passion for going into engineering yeah. very early on Uh, my even father asked me do you really want to do engineering do you want to consider going to medicine i was uh, you know point blank i said i want to go into engineering it was a no brainer yeah so but i didn't uh, they didn't instigate me towards iit or anything they did certainly uh, gave a lot of importance for education right so they would go to extreme whatever it is education is the top priority but then they didn't really put pressure or even instigate me towards iit yeah. 
the i was uh, introduced to iit by my sister she, my sister also was an engineer she also mm-hmm. studied in university mm-hmm. she told me about uh, iit said okay you know what uh, i've been to this college but then uh, there is this college right across uh, which is uh, top notch and uh, it will give you a lot more opportunities if you study and uh, so that's what uh, interested me yeah and uh, i so uh, for me uh, uh, i studying for iit was yeah. just uh, motivated by myself right so uh, sorry i interrupted you earlier so you were talking about brilliance tutorials and how you prepared was was that the only thing you did or did you do any other coaching so that's what i did for about couple of years yeah. and then uh, it turned out that uh, f- uh, during my 12th grade uh, we moved back to chennai and uh, So it's another one of those one of your eight moves. Yes, it's that was the last school. <laughs> That's eighth school. So I, by the time I was already in this program, right? So like a two, like a multi-year program. So I was already midway through it. But uh, they also brilliant tutorials had uh, a four-month program which you can go attend in the class. So I would uh, I I would also go attend that. So at the end of the school, I would go. I'll catch a bus, travel for one hour, uh, attend, one the, hour. attend the oh, class. So yeah. the class would be from somewhere six six o'clock to like eight o'clock. So I would uh, go back and then reach home at nine o'clock. Uh, so I did that for about four months. And but these are the two. uh uh i basically exclusively with brilliance tutorials yeah. <laughs> mix of uh, postal and uh, this uh, short in person yeah. sessions and that uh, that was helpful i mean for that uh, for that time for the level of uh, coaching they provided it was helpful as uh so that actually segues to uh, a general question i want to ask everyone and you know anyone can jump in here so uh 1994 before we all met uh, before we all got into iit Uh, we wrote the joint entrance exam, the JE, which is fairly competitive. Even back then, uh, there was about a hundred thousand, two hundred thousand students who wrote it, and essentially only the the top, the cream, uh, got in. Um, and and all of us are among the topmost ranks in in the country uh, here back in 1994. Uh, and it hasn't really changed much there. You know, back then we had five IITs, I think maybe six. Depending on uh, how you count, and now there is more, but it's still the entrance exam is is still fairly competitive. Uh, I, I want to ask uh, each of you and anyone who can jump in here: What was the hardest thing in preparing for the IIT JEE entrance exam in '94? So I would say the hardest, at least for me, was access to know what to do to prepare. Right. Uh, over the years, I've become very conflicted with the way. what jee has stood for and uh, especially last year when my son went through the high school admission process here mm-hmm. right it's sometimes it's mind boggling to see that the jee system still remains uh, in spite of what it claims that it's all merit based and it's open for all and if you study well and do well in an exam you can get through that is the one liner in practical at least in that time right it is it was very limited to people who had knowledge of you know how to crack this mm-hmm. and it still continues to be yes in in some way or the other right uh, if you look at an uh, admission process here for example where kids are evaluated against other kids with similar backgrounds with similar opportunities and what they are able to achieve in that space uh, 
and they are looked at for what they've done through their high school as opposed to a system where it blindly gives you this is what you need to know to crack the exam mm-hmm. which is not often taught in your high school syllabus yeah. right you are expected to go out and learn it and master it and be competitive in it and have access to exactly what kind of questions are asked before how do you solve it you know these are the n books that you need to read and so on it's uh, some way it is it's a system that is kind of uh, inherently built to shut out a lot of communities and a lot of people people with and less was, resources right and this was fairly obvious from our batch as well right so you could see that the ones who got in were from very sim- uh, very similar backgrounds with some exceptions of course uh small towns kids were shut out ones who had uh, didn't have access to these kind of resources or private coaching were shut out mm-hmm. so i would uh, for me i also had a similar experience like shriram right i was in a small town called velur mm-hmm. where i was till the end of my ninth grade and for and nobody in my family had you know gone to iit or anything like that mm-hmm. for some reason because i used to do well in class something the Uh, someone had told my parents who had no clue about engineering or anything like that that oh this is a place where you can go and if he does well in the exam he can get in and the main thing was the cost is low yeah right so uh, for for that they they moved to chennai because of that when i was in uh, 10th mm. because there there was no way to prepare in that small town yeah. and and as you can see in retrospect not that many families have the uh, ability to do that right and the whole fact that you know came here then found some place where they, there was some coaching latched on to that and did that and finally cracked an exam where which didn't take anything into account as what i did over the last 4 years yeah. 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 right so in some way we were product of a system that was inherently flawed but we kind of made through it waded through it mm-hmm. and uh, i would say that is uh, i'm not too proud of cracking that system and coming into yeah. here would you say that um, the the nature of the exam has changed quite a bit so you know when we wrote idj yeah. it was Uh, there was a little bit of multiple choice but largely it was d- the main exam was descriptive exam descriptive answer get right descriptive answers right. now it's largely multiple choice do you think that has made uh, that has leveled the playing field a little bit for some students it has but there are a lot of other things also in in play now right now you can see the same similar argument being made in terms of the medical entrance examination with neat and the uh, all the protests that are going on to uh, about neat implementation right mm. so ideally if there for a level playing field someone who is learning through just their school having their school syllabus yeah. should be able to do it or should should be able to provide material as to why they they would be uh, they should be selected to for this program mm-hmm. right or even if you look at the uk model where they say you know you you do these things you get so many a uh, grades in your a levels then you automatically qualify for this university or you qualify for some other university yeah we need to think of moving in that direction right mm-hmm. rather than have the this arbitrary merit based exam which you may not be able to 
correct if you are from a different kind of society yeah the access to opportunity and and training certainly comes up even in the case of us exams like sat exactly yeah. that's exactly why you are saying that uh, uh, sat is were that my my son at some point of time was saying oh this is this is unfair i've done this thing i've cracked sat i've done all this yeah. now why is it now, why why the university is not looking at it yeah right yeah. but in the in the bigger point of view yeah. now it is clearly proven that a high score in sat is more correlating to your background and your opportunity yeah. rather than your uh, mental aptitude itself so i i was in chennai mm. right and big city yeah. big city and also uh, tutors were there right and that's definitely an opportunity that plays a significant role in who gets into iit yeah. which i i think is true at every stage in anyone's career mm. right so if you ask me what what was the challenge and what did i learn one challenge was trying to prioritize what you study knowing that you may get it or you may not get it because the iit system is completely different from the school system mm. right so therefore you have to learn how to go on two paths and balancing your time your effort and your energy right in hindsight I, i it was not a challenge then yeah, yeah. but <laughs> thinking about it 10 years later 15 years later even something as simple as when we when we wrote the exam chemistry physics and mathematics were the three subjects yeah and i believe they are equally weighted right? right i as an individual needed to know okay what is my strength play to that strength to the maximum and learn the subject where you are weakest right yeah. so that you don't really fall too much so those were certain lessons that i learned right while preparing once once the exams are over and we got into iit i think the biggest lesson was learning how to work with peers right was as smart smarter than you right so when you are when you are going from one level to the next level right you try to optimize but then you find out you need to you're in a new level playing field yeah right and those were some lessons which have helped personally continuously over the career because when you do a masters when you do a phd yeah. when you work right every stage you have to play to your strengths and you also n- need to understand how to respect others yeah that's beautiful that's i've never thought about it that way my experience has been similar to shiram's right in the sense i come from a a smaller town i'm not in the i'm not i'm not uh, i think shankar is probably in the same boat yeah, as me yeah, yeah. We, uh, we come from the same smaller town so we wouldn't didn't have access to the coaching centers etc so we had it it and uh, we uh, in my town I, i guess before me the one person who went to iit was like maybe 6 years before oh me, wow right? okay so, yeah okay not even family it's like in your town yeah, yeah. so yeah. so we knew that that person went to iit and then, yeah. you know he was kind of uh, yeah. um my the the way i knew about it is my brother tried for it for a few months and then didn't really like pursue it mm. so i kind of knew okay there's something called iit right mm. so figuring out how to prepare for this exam which is you know which uh, i have no clue about um uh, uh, was 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 a challenge um but but i uh, but i think it, it it kind of boiled down to using the material which my brother had and then I there see. was one 
I think for physics, there was one teacher in my college who was teaching it. So mm. he, he was giving, he was, uh, mm. he was uh, uh, giving after school classes or whatever for, for an hour or so. So that, mm. that, that was what helped me. Um, but it was super hard, um, yeah. super hard figuring it out when, when you don't know like what level, what, what you need right. to calibrate against. Right, right, right. right. Um, yeah, yeah. So it, it, in hindsight, it wasn't obvious that 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 that, that uh, I would have I would have gotten through. Mm-hmm. Uh, it just so happened that that that, 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 that I got through. Mm-hmm. Um, I know of many friends who would given guidance. Uh, at least a few of my friends from my my uh, uh, my town would have probably at least gotten through uh, IIT in, in, at, at some level. Mm. Uh, but, but they kind of through halfway through they just uh, I mean I think to to to, to Shaker's point right like it's a, about prioritizing do I uh, do I optimize for a different uh, engineering entrance exam because yeah. there were different kinds of engineering yeah. entrance exams which are not all the same which all don't follow the same uh, uh, syllabus or or the same uh, curriculum or same format. And so they they optimized for a different uh, set of uh, engineering exams, and so uh, because that's what they thought, like they had a higher chance of getting in. Yeah. Um, so, so I think that 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 was the hardest part, uh, getting in. But I think the the journey of uh, to uh, to Shaker's point, I guess, like the journey helped uh, me uh, be uh, be able to learn how to learn. Yeah. Well, right, like yeah. go yeah. and yeah. figure out things and learn, learn how to learn, yeah. which helped me along the way, I guess. Yeah. 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 So that's why. So Shankar, you also came from a fairly small town, and and Praveen, you you also as well. So I guess I guess Rajshaker and I are the only ones in like a big city. Uh, but but I'd love to hear your. Which your, is which is kind of unusual for our batch, though. Yeah. If you look at the population in IIT, this is kind yeah. of like, this is not representative. Yeah. 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 Well, in my case, it was similar to Ramesh's experience. Uh, my brother actually had also been to IIT. So right. even though I was from a small town, and there's not that much kind of awareness or like coaching opportunities within that town. Uh, I had the other big advantage that my brother had gone through the same process and so I kind of knew what to expect uh, in a way. So yeah. I, I always think for him it must have been hard. But like <laughs> for me it was not. And yet I didn't manage to get, get the same. I mean, he got a better rank than me. So I'm like, <laughs> that's terrible. <laughs> so for me it is... Uh, you know, it's actually interesting going back in time, like almost, uh, what is it, like 20 years? 27 20, years. 27 <laughs> years, right? So, uh, I actually come from a family of professionals. My dad was a civil engineer. Mm-hmm. He went to RSC. So, he went to, it's called RIT, so Regional Institute of Technology, Jamshedpur. It is basically equivalent of RSC. Now, it is called NITs, right? So, he always knew the value of IIT and he always used to inspire me that, okay, I think when you grow up, if you want to be a doctor, we actually prefer you to be a doctor, they like they wanted me to be a doctor. So there was a subtle pressure. There was a pressure, but uh, you know, by the time I was in tenth, I realized my interest was in maths, right? Yeah. Maths and science was my interest. Mm-hmm. I used to like biology, but uh, I said, okay, I'm actually going to be in a, in a, only in engineering, right? So I made my choice clear, and they said, okay, I think because I could not get into IIT, at least you should get into right. So they inspired me. My brother also was, uh, you know, his one year senior to me academically. He could not get into IIT. He he joined a state uh, engineering college in Bhubaneswar. So uh, the uh, minds, mindset was there, although we came from a small town, because we were part of, uh, you know, a family where others have cracked uh, similar things. So it was there. 
and my cousin actually he grew up in Raurkela so he always used to inspire me because there obviously there much you know he himself could not could not get into IIT but whenever i would meet him in holidays he would say okay mm-hmm. that's what you want to study right mm-hmm. uh now the, th- the interesting thing is i grew up in a very small town in fact i think smallest smaller than everyone here probably mm-hmm. i mean today is about 700000 population Rel- relatively it is big for yeah. india standard is actually not bad yeah. uh you know 100 plus but anyway so uh every in my time every two years or three years there will be one person who would get into iit in fact my school there was one guy who who went who was a top 50 into iit a long time back mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. um and somebody i know five six years senior to me he was a j level so so at the end of 10th i had a gap of my summer holidays right my break and i took a computer course so i actually learned basic and right in that summer i decided that okay actually if i want to be an engineer i actually want to be a computer science uh, engineer right so this became like okay my goal has to be that i have to go into iit and actually have to study computer science mm-hmm. so there was additional pressure to which i put myself because mm-hmm. this is this was my aspiration my goal and uh, so for that i had to basically reverse engineer what i have to do to achieve that right okay, yeah. so so the you know i never could, like balaji made a very good point about the schooling system here i think these are great points i at my level of maturity i didn't have to question it i just accepted it mm-hmm. it was fine to me to be from a small school small town doesn't matter right there are no coaching classes nothing so but there was also no additional pressure it was my goal my ambition that i have to study computer science at an iit which is actually very very hard right yeah so i took agarwal classes which is actually i mean all of us i think all of us have taken so i think you know all of us have taken so we know so uh, very early on it was clear that uh, it's very very hard i was very diligent in my coursework with uh, correspondence and i used to get answers which are like okay this is good that is good right and actually st- i used to study very hard by the way i probably used to average like 12 hours a day and only for id because the college you know the education didn't matter but i wasn't sure how where i knew where i stood because calibration was not there right yeah i went for the first agarwal mock exam in vizag which is actually yeah. not in my place yeah. and i thought it was a very, like i did very poorly and i when i when i came back home i told like i didn't even i don't think i'm even going to get 50% of the marks yeah. right turns out it was actually less than 50% but the rank came out to be uh, in the top 100 yeah okay. so that's when i knew okay i think uh, it is hard for not for me for everyone and then as i got closer to the final exams i only got i like i actually only improved further hmm. so so and i was able to crack it right so i give lot of credit to agarwal classes hmm. definitely my parents especially my dad because he inspired me my cousin my brother and my cousin actually he gave me all the books that were needed right without which i don't think yeah. it would have been possible it was agarwal classes books and my own perseverance my own ambition right mm-hmm. so the books were everything like you know resnik alade irodov uh, sl loni like from math science physics i mean maths physics chemistry everything was there but it was really ultimately comes down to your own will power and i think the fact that i was in a small town I I think it turned out to be an advantage for me that is I never it doesn't didn't matter to me if somebody was better or worse yeah. uh I didn't have anything to lose yeah and I think in the end it was a very good outcome and actually even today I feel like that's my best achievement in my yeah. in my academic career although in another in, in, like exam rookie I actually did even better but it's in the entrance examination right yeah. 
So, 94 was a good year. After that, I don't think I've ever achieved that much ever in my life, by the way, academically or uh, professionally. But I'm very proud of what I achieved during that time. So, so, so mine was exactly the oppos- opposite. So, when I joined IIT, I had no idea what the different departments were, what to take. And I ended up taking computer science because that is what people around me with my ranks <laughs> took. Yeah. And I remember asking our advisor at the first meeting, saying... what is what is different from what iit teaches and what nit teaches nit was a, yeah. another institute that used to teach programming so that was my level of knowledge about computer science yeah. <laughs> so so we accidentally landed in this field only because of what our ranks were yeah. i think a lot of us right i mean because we we barely learned i don't know how many of you learned any programming in school or had any exposure to computer science but it's it's not anything like the kids nowadays do i think they get a little bit more exposure so we had very little knowledge of what computer science was back then so it was predominantly based on um ranks i guess that's that's the main thing and then maybe a little bit of advice here and there But that was surprising because even in a, even in a small town where the access to IIT uh, you know coaching was not there my school actually had a computer lab and so i was fortunate to okay, yeah. even uh, learn i think i was learning c when i was in like 9th grade or something oh, on my yeah. own there was, there was no school yeah. computer science subject yeah. or anything yeah, yeah. so that was one thing that uh, i think by that time probably there was some proliferation of uh, computer science in in yeah. in schools back then yeah, a couple of points for me um, int- i was interested in computer science Okay. that's why I, I did not enter computer science. that's right yeah so ramesh has a very interesting story so ramesh yeah. entered in a different major and then uh, based on i think the first year performance you petitioned to move to computer science so tell us a little bit about about that experience I, I, i was interested in computer science because in in, in school i was uh, doing some out of my own interest i was doing some psych classes for in mm. my, in my, in my 11th and 12th mm. and so i was interested in like you know, learning more i guess at that time i was thinking like i'll write assembly language programs mm-hmm. because they were teaching me higher level mm-hmm. i don't know mm-hmm. basic and whatever i'll i'll actually write like assembly language programs right yeah. and then uh, but it turned out that i would, I, i didn't i didn't write like as many assembly language programs but that's the reason i kind of asked my brother to kind of go for computer science and i kind of came to computer science and in iit i see yeah so, so another thing which i think uh, praveen points out which i don't i don't know how much of an influence this would be first he he brought up an interesting point about small town if you are from a small town you might not have as much pressure as if you mm-hmm. as, as much as as you would yeah. have if you yeah. were in this coaching classes in cities this maybe there's something beside for that 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 might like you know help you if you are motivated help you to kind of like you know work by yourself and no i actually that's, a, I that's the same thing here i mean it's kid i see kids here in bay area and yeah. around a tremendous pressure compared to yeah. even asian kids in outside the bay area this conversation continued for another hour a lot of surprising revelations occurred in that second hour stay tuned and check back next week for part 2 of this conversation episode featuring six technologists from India from IIT Chennai computer science batch of 1998 all the music used in episodes of the immigrant computer scientist podcast is royalty free all voice recordings were performed with and are reproduced with full consent of narrators and participants you can find music credits on our website join the online discussion about this podcast on all major social media including twitter and facebook with the handle csimmigrant and hashtag csimmigrant 
And of course, the episode guide is available at our website, csimmigrant.org. This is the Immigrant Computer Scientists Podcast.